At this time, we have a sermon from Mr. Matthew Steele entitled, Unknown God and God of the Unknown. Thank you, Reg. Good afternoon. Beautiful day. I, I will apologize. Yes, it was my son. Joseph, that was praying for all the snow. Um, <laughs> uh, he's praying for more. So, <laughs> sorry. <clears throat> Topic I'm going to touch on today. I I feel like I've probably, I don't know, spoken about this way too many times, but I just find it so fascinating um, from a historical standpoint. From philosophical standpoint, um, and then hopefully from a, a different perspective this time. You know, we, we've, we know the story probably pretty well. Uh, it's found in, in Acts chapter 17. We find this account um, of a, a famous sermon that Paul delivers standing on Mars Hill in Athens. And, you know, I'd love to go there someday and... and uh, and, and basically yell out, we're still here, you know, no matter what. Um, the, the, this faith that, that, that Paul was preaching of is alive and well in us, isn't it? Um, but, you know, he stood there and he had this opportunity to speak to the leaders of, uh, of the, the Western world's philosophical uh, basis, you know, and, and this is where... Even today, we get our, our Western worldview from. Uh, we cannot avoid it. We are, in many ways, the children of the Greeks and the Romans and, and their philosophical, philosophical worldviews. And, and albeit we um, certainly have a lot of differences, our Western mindset is very much shaped by, by these folks. But interestingly enough, uh, if you delve into the history of uh, the Greek development, this, there's a lot to indicate that they got their start by seeing the power and the glories and the, the great temple of Solomon. Because Solomon predated, obviously, the Greek development. And certainly his fame may have spread abroad in, in, in the world. But so we have Paul standing on Mars Hill in Athens on the Areopagus, if, if I'm saying that correctly. And this is, you know, this is the place, like I said, where Socrates and Plato and Aristotle had all, you know, had their philosophical uh, treaties examined. And he says, standing there, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. And you know, it must have been pretty bold for this guy. Who, who is this guy? This strange looking Jewish fellow. who's come out of nowhere. And he's going to tell us about the unknown God that we've had this, this altar to. 
But, you know, that's exactly what he did. Him I proclaim to you, God, who does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he is needing anything, since he gives to all life and breath and, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. He's just painting this incredible picture, isn't he, that, that, that mankind is in its darkness, and we're just groping around trying to find through, through that darkness, maybe there's a distant voice, something telling us internally that there's an unknown God out there, and it's not the God of our imagination. That we might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said. For we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. I'm wondering what their attention was at this point. He just called them a bunch of ignorant men. You know, these are the great philosophers. <laughs> they, these are the, the heirs of the great philosophers. And he just said, the times of, of this ignorance, God gave us a pass. But now, he is requiring that we repent. Because he's done something. Something that has never been done before. In the history of mankind, he has done something. And he goes on to say what that is. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. That is that something, that powerful thing that God has done and performed that now has made our ignorance no longer permissible. Our ignorance of the true nature of God is no longer acceptable because this man, Jesus Christ, came, revealed to us the nature of God, revealed to us the nature of man and our role and, and what God has planned for us. He has revealed this and he has certified it by his own death and resurrection. Paul's words are... Masterful. I mean, you could read this and learn more and more and more about his approach. In this one passage, we see actually a couple of different philosophies, I think, or at least his education coming together, East and West, merged into this message. One of the things that Paul pulled in it was, I think, inspired by the prayer of Solomon and the dedication of the temple. Do you, you remember that? You know, the temple had been completed. And Solomon is, is dedicating it. And he says something really powerful. And I think Paul reflects that here. And this was, you know, 150 years before the Greeks 
even started to appear in history. Solomon said these words. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold heaven, and the heavens of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. And Paul's reflected that, hasn't he? In his sermon on Mars Hill. Because he said, God doesn't live in temples made by men's hands. That's not possible. Not in the way that we think that he would live in those temples. So Paul has used his, his uh, Eastern education, if you want to call it, his grounding in, in the Bible and, and in, in his Hebrew teaching. And he's starting to pull that into his message. It was t- entirely possible, like I said earlier too, that simple, uh, Solomon's temple could have been a template could have been known and, and seen by the early developing Greeks later for them to build their own structures, their own temples from. But either way, Paul is bringing in this wisdom that we have from the scriptures. But then he does something else. And I, uh, my wife suggested I do a little bit more research on this. He brings in the Greek history and the Greek philosophy and specifically he pulls in a term from Greek poetry uh, he's bringing in this when he says as also some of your own poets have said for we are also his offspring and that was a famous that was a reference to a famous poem of uh, Aratus of Soli who wrote the poem um, who was it was really a poem about astronomy of all things, of course, the Greeks mixed science and philosophy and religion all together. You know, unlike our world today, that's that's verboten, right? We're not allowed to have faith and science together. That's not what the the Greeks thought. That's not how they thought. And so uh, we have this poem, and I'm going to make a mess of the name of it. Phaenomia, I think, is is how it's pronounced, and it was is actually a term applied to Zeus. And so, you know, again, it's interesting. Paul is showing his, his credentials. He knows Greek philosophy. Because in this poem it says, From Zeus let us begin. To him we mortals never leave unnamed. Full of Zeus are all the streets and all the marketplaces of men. Which, you know, is probably literally true, right? Because you go buy statues of Zeus all over the place. But... but you know, in the poem, he's trying to say that Zeus made, made everything, and of course we know differently. But this is what the Greek mind thought. Always we have the need of Zeus, for we are also his offspring. And that's the, the term that Paul used to get their attention. Oh, he knows, our, he knows our stuff. Okay, maybe this guy is worth listening to. Uh, for we also are his offspring, and he, in his kindness, unto men giveth favorable, favorable signs, and wakeneth the people to work, reminding them of livelihood. So, right there is, you know, get to work, business, right? It's been the same the world over. <laughs> Let's keep the economy going. Get to work. 
But Paul was brilliant in pulling these parts together and pulling uh, what you would otherwise think were, were different uh, terms and different parts of, of history and faith. And he's pulling it together. And he's making this argument that the unknown God is actually the God that, uh, that Paul was revealing to them that was who we return to as, as Yahweh, as God the Father and Jesus Christ. But it's interesting, as I said in the beginning, we are, you know, we're the children of the Greeks and the Romans in lots and lots of ways and probably ways that we really wish we weren't. Um, it's affected our culture. And so this works for us too because we can kind of understand what Paul is trying to get across to us. That there is a God beyond the God of our own imagination. And that can be literally, you know, people will develop philosophies of life and ways of living and they've maybe grown into religions and they were just the work of man at some point and now grown into these uh, religions that are followed around the world and there's so many of them. But then also individually too, we do this. We start to try and define God according to our appetite how we want him to be for us. And that's a danger. That's something that we should be aware of. But then, you've got Paul pulling in these, these uh, quotes, as it were, and these concepts. And then he gets to the real genius, as I've already been talking about. When he uses this altar dedicated to the agnostos theos. Agnostos Theos is what would have been written in Greek in those funny letters that would have been written there on those altars. Translated into English, the unknown God. Now, I think I've talked about it before, the, the reason that the Greeks did this was because they were hedging their bets, right? There might be a God out there that we didn't know about and he's going to be mad and he'll destroy us. So, we'll make this altar. Right? We'll hedge our... It's superstition, isn't it? Man, is that alive. Is it, I mean, that's alive in humanity still, isn't it? Well, okay, it might be this, it might be that. You know, throw salt over your shoulder. All those silly superstitions that people have come up with. Just in case. Just in case there's an unknown God out there. We better set up this altar. Now, some historians, interestingly, have said <laughs> that this Agnos Theos and this altar for this person was a, um, an infection into the purity of the Greek culture and philosophy from the East. And they're saying, that really shouldn't have been there. I'm like, well, it was. They did it. And we have pictures. Uh, we actually, I think they have more... Um, uh, they actually have more artifacts of the Roman version of this. The Romans carried this on as well. But we still have evidence. We have the actual stones that show this. That they really did have this belief and concern that they might upset an unknown God. 
But, you know, there's, there's another interesting part of this. You know, they're saying, well, they got this idea from, from the East, and it really shouldn't be there. But, and, and they also say, it, this concept of the unknown God didn't happen until the last 200 years or so of, of their development. But maybe it was groping in the dark just like Paul said, just like he said on Mars Hill. Maybe it was they were finally figuring out that all these pantheon of gods with their vindictive nature and their just evil characteristics and all of this worship and practice that they did, and all of these sacrifices that they did, weren't working. They were not working. And I'm just curious, I wonder if they started to think that there was another God out there we can't quite see. There was actually a God out there that we can't quite see, that we're looking for. Because everything that they had studied and devised was insufficient. Ultimately, insufficient to answer, I believe, this single question, which is the easiest question we've all ever asked, right? Why are we? Mankind's constant question. Why are we here? Why do we even exist? Why does the universe even exist? In many ways, variations of that question. The universe shouldn't exist. There's so many different attributes about the universe that shouldn't be the way they are. And again, our science, our reasoning, our philosophy is failing us. And so we're saying there's an unknown God out there. There's an Agnos Theos who has given life and purpose to all creatures, who created this realm, this universe, who's ordered it according to his will and for his purpose. These are the questions the Greeks were answering or trying to answer, and I don't think they were satisfied with the answers. And so they had this altar the unknown God, in the hopes that they may find him and reach out to him, as Paul said, groping in the darkness. And so then Paul appears on the scene, doesn't he? And he says that he has the answers. Very boldly, I've got the answer to all your philosophical struggles for this last 800 years. I've got it right here. So he wasn't, uh, wasn't afraid to tell them. But what was their response? Well, it's pretty mixed, wasn't it? In verse 32, it says, When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, mm, We'll hear you again on this matter. I don't know if they were just being kind. So Paul departed from amongst them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, uh, Dionysius, the Arapagate, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And so some were persuaded. We don't know exactly how many, but some were persuaded. You know, the rest of them, what Paul said, was foolishness. It must have seemed just ridiculous 
they had all these great philosophies, these, these great historical figures that had given them all this wisdom. And then, basically, Paul said, the answer that you're looking for was the death and resurrection of the Son of God. That's it. It's that simple. And yet, they couldn't accept it, could they? Cause it Probably because it was that simple. Because it was an actual evidence of something that God was working. But they wanted something different. They wanted something maybe harder to understand. They mocked Paul because the truth that he brought did not conform to their preconceived ideas about the nature of God. Again, is that something that we can do? That we might do and say, well, God moves in this way. God did this and God did that. And he really didn't. It's something that we need to take seriously. The Greeks had the agnostios, the unknown God. But would it surprise you to learn that so did the Jews? Because essentially the message that Paul was giving to the Greeks was couched in their terms, in their intellectual uh, language. But it was the same message that he would try and give to the Jews, to his own nation, to the Israelites. Uh, in Jerusalem, Judea, and, and in that known world. We get an indication of this all the way back into Jeremiah, in fact. In fact, this is something that the Israelites suffered from from the beginning. In Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 22, God says, For my people are foolish, they have not known me. He was an unknown God to them. They have not known me. It's probably even worse because... They thought that they knew him. At least the Greeks were a little bit more honest, right? There might be an unknown God out there. But Israel, they have not known me, he said. They are silly children, and they have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. And then later in his ministry, Jesus echoes this same truth. In Mark chapter 7, verse 5, it says, The Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why are your disciples not, do not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. He was an unknown God to them. An unknown God. And then even more emphatically to the Jewish leaders, when he was standing in the temple, you know, their version of Mars Hill, right? Standing in the temple. In John chapter 8, verse 12, it says, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And the Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Aha! We've got you. By two or three witnesses shall a thing be established. And you're just saying that you're somebody and 
who are you and you're only one person, right? These guys never learned that you never win an argument with Jesus. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. And yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And they said to him, Where is your father? And Jesus said, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you have known my father also. Completely unknown God. And it does it doesn't it explain so much about how they treated Jesus. They just didn't know God. These Jewish leaders, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, the lawyers, priests in Jerusalem, in the end, they didn't know God any more than the Greeks did. In fact, the Greeks, as I said before, were really a little bit more honest about it. They said, we don't know the unknown God, so we're going to stick an altar out here. And today, we have versions of that, don't we? It's interesting. Have you ever met somebody that says they're agnostic? Ever met? Well, I'm an agnostic. Have you noticed that they always say it with a kind of a level of pride, an intellectual superiority? You know what agnostic means, right? So agnostic means someone who believes that nothing is known or can be known about the existence or nature So when they're saying to us that they're agnostic with this prideful approach, what they're saying is that they are proud, but they are stupid. (laughs) What was that? Yeah. (laughs) And then he smacked you in the mouth? No. (laughs) But that's what they're saying. They're saying, with pride, I have no knowledge. That I'm dumb on this fact. It's fascinating, but we still have it. We still have this. <laughs> I mean, it's, is it from the Greeks and the Romans? I don't know. Certainly, they like to um, imply as though that they are intellectuals that way. They're, in fact, just ignorant. Paul later addressed the same concepts when he was writing to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You know, it just sounds ridiculous to them. They don't get it because he's unknown to them. And they are perishing. In mind and body and spirit, they are lost. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And you know, this is not 
God saying that wisdom and education and knowledge and you know, intellectual exploration is bad. What God is saying is that the people that think they are wise, that think they are knowledgeable, that think that they know what God is, or in our age, that God is not. That is their so-called wisdom. And that's really foolishness. He says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the wise? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger. And he's saying a lot in here, but I, I really like how he's, he's kind of talking again as he did on Mars Hill. The Jews wanted a sign, so Jesus gave them a sign. And instead of believing, it was a stumbling block. He said, the only sign I will give you is what? Jonah, three days, three nights. He did it. And it's a stumbling block to them. Even he gave them what they asked for. And then the Greeks. The Greeks counted it as foolishness. You know, buried within this. And it, there's a lot more, of course, we know to the death and, and resurrection of our Savior. But buried within that is the whole purpose of life. The whole reason we're here, the whole reason we're still here, the whole reason we were made in the first place. Because in this single act, this meaning of life act, it determines and helps us understand why we are here. We are to be, we're here to be changed, to be changed into the very nature of our Savior. From weak, mortal beings to eternal children of God. For what purpose? For what purpose did God make us? So that we could live as his children forever. Now there's so much more to that, isn't there? But that's the simplicity that the Greeks just could not accept. It wasn't sophisticated enough. It didn't explain things the way that they wanted it to explain. But it's that simple. Jesus came to show us the way. Jesus came to make for us the way. And through his spirit helps us to follow that way of life. Which is the meaning of everything. There is more depth. There is more understanding. There's more wonder. We talk about those things. But this is really a very simple message. And the Greeks tripped over it. The Jews tripped over it. And we need to make sure that we don't trip over it. Because it would be so easy for us to start adding all kinds of interesting philosophical views to our faith that are not from the book. 
And, and when we study and when we maybe read others and we, and we explore perhaps broader Christian influences, we always need to come back to the book, don't we? And see, does it align with this basic principle? Does it align with the word of God in its simplest form? We are his offspring. And through Christ Jesus, he has redeemed us, set us back on the path of eternal life. Paul continues, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh. I'm glad he put that modifier in there. Not very wise according to the flesh, but according to God. We are wise. We have understood what he's trying to tell us. We have understood what he's doing for us. And we've accepted it. That is wisdom. That is pure wisdom. Not many mighty, not many noble are called according to the flesh. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring nothing to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. But Paul doesn't stop here because he says, if this faith, if this truth that we have is of human wisdom and reasoning, if it's of intellectual study and, and smart, clever philosophies, what can happen to that? It can be undone by a cleverer philosophy and a smarter argument, right? If it was truly based in just human reasoning, then the next guy can come along that's better and smarter and win over the argument. That's not how he brought this faith that we have to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, it's the same Corinthian world, isn't it? It's the same world as, as, as he found on Mars Hill in Athens. And he brought the same message. Jesus Christ crucified. That sign, three days and three nights in the earth. He brought nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. I wish they were coming to nothing quicker. But this faith that we have, in this faith, he says there's room 
There's room for intellectual argument and growth and development and study and, and examination of interesting things, just like we've done today. You know? He's saying that we can still do all those things, but the basis of our faith is really pretty simple. And it cannot be based on just this arguments and reasons of man. And neither can it be based on our own interpretation to make our practice a little easier and our life a little easier, perhaps. What David talked about earlier is coming. It's already here. There are going to be more challenges for the people of God, for those that believe in this simple message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, that believe in the simple message of God's law, that it's good for us, it helps us, no matter how compassionately and gen, you know, genuinely in care for others that we try and impart that, the world is not going to hear it. All the more we need to make sure that we follow this word, follow the word of God without tweaking and adjusting it to our own image of God. The basis of our understanding is not clever reasoning. It is an understanding that can only come from the revelation of the Holy Spirit working in us, convicting us, changing us, renewing us from the inside out. It's the work of the Holy Spirit of God that changes the altar in our hearts. It changes the altar in our hearts from the inscription on it that says, at one time, the unknown God that we were looking for. And now it says his name, that we know him, and we fellowship with him through Christ Jesus. But Paul doesn't stop here. He says there's even greater wonder and power to the truth that he reveals on Mars, Mars Hill. On Mars Hill, Paul tried to reveal to the Greeks the unknown God. The same unknown God that he tried to tell the Jews about. And neither, neither of them heard it very well. Some did. Some did. But in revealing this truth, he also revealed that the agnostheos was also the theos agnos. That the unknown God was and is the God of the unknown. He said, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So he's describing a situation where mankind can't even see into this plan of God because it's unknown to them. But God is the God of the unknown. And he reveals it to us. And he just, so in Christ, he just doesn't leave us ignorant. He starts to reveal this, this wonderful truth and life that we will have with him in the future. He says, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. 
For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the Spirit of man which is in him. You know, we can, we can talk about that in, you know, in kind of further divided. I mean, a man, literally a male, knows what it's like to live as a male. A woman knows what it's like to live as a woman. But I'm sorry, contrary to popular opinion these days, one cannot understand the other. It's a unique journey. And we can certainly learn from, e from each other. But to truly know how it is to live as a man or live as a woman, you have to be them. And neither can a dog know how to live as a man. No matter how much my dogs try and identify as humans so that they can get more food. Right? So he's saying, look, you have to have this nature and this spirit to understand that, that life, that, that new life. And so he goes on to say, even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So we can see how this, there's just no way that two sets of people, Jews and Greeks, could possibly come to understand the unknown God. Because they didn't have the Spirit of God. They rejected it. And then they cannot possibly understand the plan that God has because it's unknown to them because they don't have his Spirit. Because he is the God of the unknown. He says, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know this, the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but, with the, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And, the, you know, he's quoting from the scriptures. Who has known the Lord that you can instruct him? He's not saying that we can instruct him. But he's saying that we have his mind through his spirit in us. That he is instructing us. We have the mind of Christ. It is so comforting, isn't it? When you think about all the challenges that just this last year has presented. Regardless of what you think about those challenges, they've had very real effects on, on lives. And, and we don't know what the end is going to look like. Nobody has any idea. Just this morning, on BBC News, I get an alert. There's a new variant of COVID. Oh, are we rebooting this again now? Is this starting all over again? Is the new magical vaccine going to fix that one too? It's completely unknown. Completely unknown. But God is the God of the unknown. He knows. He knows the beginning from the end. As the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom 
we must give an account. He sees everything. He's the God of the unknown. And then in Nebuchadnezzar's, remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel, in his prayer, thanking God for revealing this, this uh, interpretation, otherwise they're all going to die. And Daniel answers and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. He is the God of the unknown. He can see beyond what we can see. He can see it all. When we're in trouble, he knows how to help. When we are uncertain, the path is clear to him. When we are in trouble, as I said, he knows how to help us. As the Eternal says in Isaiah 46 and verse 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times to things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I and I will do all my pleasure. He knows the beginning from the end. You know, I know there's uh, probably lots of you know Calvinistic debates in that uh, in that scripture, and oh, it's all you're saying it's preordained. No. I'm just saying God knows the beginning from the end. I don't know exactly how all that works. My brain's not there yet. But I do know he is the God of the unknown. And he will do all of his pleasure. We serve a sovereign Lord. And as Paul told us, he is revealed to us. Even though it's maybe, as he says, a dark mirror still. He's still revealing to us the things that so many in this world have not come to understand and know. We shouldn't be prideful about that. We should be grateful that we have that. To give us hope, to give us a new life, to give us a kingdom, to give us grace and peace, you remember what the words were that Jesus spoke in Nazareth when he went into the synagogue? They gave him the book of Isaiah, didn't they? And he began to read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that, he may be, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. This is unknown to the world. They just don't know this. And yet, God has revealed it to us. And he's revealed that he is our healer. 
that he is our provider, that he has set us free from the bondage of sin. He has called his righteousness, the planting of the Lord. God, our God, is the God, the unknown God that the Greeks were looking for, and that the Jews were looking for. We know him. And that is a treasure and something we should protect and guard and not lose. We should hold fast to that. We should remember to him our future is clear. The path that he has made for us is certain. We will stay on it. We have to stay on that path. There's still more for us to learn. And there would seem to be plenty of us to learn about him and to explore. Because what else are we going to do for eternity? To learn and grow and mature with him. The final thought I want to leave with you today is something that I touched upon earlier. The Greeks and the Jews both were trying to worship a God that they didn't know. The Greeks, being more honest about it, they at least had an altar over here to the, the unknown God. They could offer up sacrifices to appease this God that they didn't understand. But what about you and I? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul introduces to the, the church there the concept that they were the living, breathing temple of God. And of course... In that world, they were very familiar with these temples, right? The temples were everywhere, especially in the Greek world. Very familiar with these concepts of temples. You went to the temple, Jewish or pagan, to pray. You went to the temple to sacrifice. You went to the, the temple to make your requests known to your deity of choice in the, in the Roman Greek world. To seek wisdom to find peace, to commune with your God, no matter how unknown he may have been. Now what's interesting about this is, and I'm not sure if you've thought of it this way before, but if we can be, as we'll read here, if we can be a righteous temple of God, is it not also possible that we can be an unrighteous temple of some false God, some false practice. Because a temple building can be used, as we saw in the history of Israel, right? Set up by Solomon. It was a righteous temple, and then the people fall away from God, and they start to add other gods in there, and turned it into an unrighteous temple. I think that can apply to us too. Start placing within ourselves idols, falsehoods, the God of our own imagination. If we start to do that, then we affect what Paul is going to tell us here. If we can be the temple of God and the Father, of God the Father and Jesus Christ, then we can also be the temple of false gods, just like the Greeks. And just like the Jewish leaders of, the, of Paul's day. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God 
and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Paul was very clear. We are the temple of God. We are absolutely been made, every one of us, to be a repository of the Holy Spirit. To be a place where God dwells. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Paul was right. Even those Greek poets were right. He dwells within us. In the temple that he has built in each and every one of us. We can't yield it up to the, temp- to the gods of our own imagination. We can't allow anything other than God to dwell in us. We have a choice. Every day to continue to be the temple of God. To become a temple of something. Or rather not to become a temple of something else. It all comes down to this. Do we know God? Do we have an altar in our hearts that says to the unknown God? Or do we have an altar in our hearts where God's name is written there? In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 11, kind of going along these same lines, when talking to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have. And we want to say, Lord Jesus, come quicker. Come quicker. Help us to hold fast what we have. That no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God. I will write on him the name of my God. It won't say unknown God. It'll say the name of God on us. And the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from God. And I will write on him my name.